Welcome to the Life Size City Urbanism Podcast. I'm Michael Koval Anderson. In this episode of the Life Size City Podcast, we're going to Vancouver. It's a city that occupies a modest, sentimental place in my heart. It's a city I moved to when I left home in 1986 at the age of 17. In effect, it was the first city in my life that I chose myself, and it's a place where I spent a few good years. I go back relatively often, albeit mostly to visit my sister who lives up the coast. I've seen the city change dramatically since the 1980s. Vancouver's reputation precedes it. When people say it's a beautiful city, and so many do, they mean the mountains and the sea. They're not talking about the massive forest of glass and steel towers that have shot up over the past 20 years. Now, I've lived in a wild variety of homes in my life. I have really weird spreadsheets for all sorts of aspects of my life, and I can see that I have lived in 45 different dwellings in 16 different cities. I've lived high up in tall buildings in Vancouver, Calgary, Hong Kong, Taipei, and Moscow. None of those homes are the ones I look back on with fondness. I'll be completely frank. I'm not a fan of tall buildings, and I look less favorably on cities that put too many eggs in the tall building basket. I haven't been a fan of the intense urban development in downtown Vancouver. It looks, to me, like the same thing I see in other cities, like, for example, Toronto. Last summer, I was in Vancouver with my two kids. We rented a car because we were heading up the coast for three weeks of holiday. As we rolled into downtown, my daughter Lulu, you might know her as The Lulu, blurted out, Shit, there are a lot of tall buildings. Look at all that glass. Now this is a Copenhagen kid. Used to the density and life-size scale of Copenhagen and many of the other European cities that we frequent. But I've also called The Lulu the world's youngest urbanist since she was three and a half years old. And I've written articles about her brilliant urban observations. I asked her if she would want to live up there in one of those buildings. She thought about it, you know, maybe for a weekend. Now, I'm always happy to embrace other perspectives about issues. I knew I needed to hear another side of the equation. At the tail end of our holiday, I met up with a friend of mine to hear his take on it. Brent Tauterin is an urban planner living in Vancouver with a broad global perspective and extensive experience around the world. He is also the former chief planner for the city of Vancouver. He suggested we meet for lunch in the Olympic Village and on the plaza nearby for a quick podcast. I cut to the chase. Okay, Vancouver is an overhyped forest of glass towers and developers have the city by the throat. Prove me wrong, go. <laughs> well, first of all, at best, uh, you've described the downtown, not the city. And so when right. we did... Uh, for example, the eco-density exercise, which was one of the things I led, it was about how you do strategic densification throughout the rest of the city, because the downtown was going to be about tall towers. And whether they're glass towers or not, we have the highest green building standards by far of any city in North America. So the materiality of the towers is changing just because it has to meet the high performance standards around, uh, around green design, for example. And the, by the way, the glass has gotten much better in terms of energy performance. It's better than other materials in some cases. So I'm not a big fan of the lazy narrative of the all oh, the bad glass towers. Mm -hmm. what, I, 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 what I say is I'm the first to hate a badly designed, shitty tall building. Mm -hmm. But frankly, it, in my observation, having worked all over the world, Vancouver does tall buildings better than most, if not all, cities I've seen. Not because of the material of the tower, but how the buildings land. Uh, we are a tall 
downtown city. But when you're walking in the downtown, as I've toured everyone from Jan Gale to every uh, politician or urbanist I know, we're, we're interrupting a good game of, uh, of uh, hide-and-seek here in our Olympic Plaza. It's, it's not a bad thing, right? I That's mean, right. Uh, we got a mom with her kid playing hide-and-seek well, uh, loudly near us, but it's awesome. Kids uh, in your public spaces are the, are the indicator species for a good neighborhood. And yeah. This neighborhood has evolved over time. But listen, when you're walking around our downtown, you don't necessarily feel an overwhelming sense, like you do in a city like, uh, a part of a city like Manhattan, for example, that the tallness is all there is. Because we've instituted this podium and tower approach, this, this idea of landing a tower, stepping it back, separating them to allow views and privacy and light access, and the podium, the four-story, five-story, pod six-story podium, establishes the human scale for the pedestrian. The, tower create, the towers create the body heat, where you ride down the elevator, which is a form of public transit and you interact with your street instead of riding down uh, into the parking lot and vomiting out onto an expressway. So the height is a red herring. It's how the buildings land, how they frame and create streets and blocks and neighborhoods. And frankly, anybody I've ever toured, the biggest cynics I've ever toured through our downtown uh, have been, I think, had a level of epiphany that says the tallness is not the dominating factor. Whether or not the developers run the place, that depends on who the chief planner is, who the, the, the mayor is and such. And there have been ebbs and flows of yeah. how much influence that developers have. But here's the point. That's, at most, that's the downtown. In the conversation around the rest of the city and indeed the rest of the region, I use terms like gentle density, hidden density, invisible density, laneway houses, ground-oriented townhouses, stacked townhouses. And yes, I'm, I'm, you're sitting in the middle of a mid-rise community, our Olympic Village, where towers were deliberately uh, rejected because we wanted to frankly reinforce the point that we are not a one-trick pony. When, as soon as you get out of the downtown, the prevailing scale is mid-rise. And frankly, there's, a lot, there's still far too many single detached houses. But those single detached houses have secondary suites in them, laneway houses out back increasingly. And increasingly, we're seeing more gentle density, not as fast and as much as I'd like around townhouses, etc. Because we need lots of different kinds of density forms. So we are not a one-trick pony in terms of tall buildings. We do tall buildings better than most cities do. But I'd be the, the first to criticize if the default assumption was that there would be tall buildings everywhere. All right, I get it. Let's get back to, uh, in a minute, to the Olympic Village here, which is sure. where you wanted me to come today. Mm -hmm. But just on the downtown. Mm -hmm. Now, I've been walking around here. I come here, I guess, every three years or so, it seems. I get sentimental because I lived here. I lived here when I was young, so I bounced around to so many different apartments. We're walking down Davy, and oh, there's the coolest apartment I've ever lived in, uh, old building, and I can see there's a sign out front that there's going to be another tower. Fine. Mm -hmm. I get your point about the towers and doing it well, but where does it end mm. in downtown Vancouver? Because man, it looks like uh, when I was is out with the a downtown yesterday. full? When is it? When is it enough? When Just is towered it? up yeah. the Wahoo. Okay. Well, there's been a kind of an assumption that the downtown is the easy place to do density. For a long time, it was the place where most of the density, if not all the density, was going. So of course, if we have places where there aren't towers, we should do more towers. That was the lazy assumption. I'm, I've never been convinced that we should put all our density eggs in that basket. Let's be clear. Vancouver will grow, should grow. The more people that live in the downtown, the more people that live in an urban city, living a lower carbon footprint life, a, 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 a life on public transit, and walking, biking, and take, taking public transit, the more more people that do that, the better it is for. Um, sorry, I'll stop there. No, sorry, we're re we're recording. Hi. Hi. Why couldn't you hop over here? Just as it's cool with kids playing hide and seek in the background on this square, a good public space is one where your conversation can be overheard. 
and a stranger can come up and introduce themselves. And we are doing a, a Lego League project this year at City Shapers. Oh yeah. So I was wondering, do you have a business card I can like maybe email you later in a Skype? We're, we live in Austin, so... Or, I mean, you live in like, Austin, Texas? <laughs> oh. Sounds like you guys know what you're talking about. He's the former chief planner for Vancouver, and I'm an I'm a urban planner as well. Oh, well, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> See? Sorry. I no. just like, this is just something we were like, that's why we're here. We're just taking pictures of the square and trying yep. to... So what do you think? Just, what do you think of the neighborhood? It's awesome. We, we love Vancouver, but if you can just... But what about this neighborhood? What do you think about this? We had a field trip. My, uh, my co-coach was trying to get the kids to figure out what makes people come to a square like this right so one of the things that retailing is a big part of it right right so and the patios and restaurants and how do you build the, the, the surrounding infrastructure around yeah. it and stuff like that so but even with the things that we have here this street for example the parking gets stripped off on the weekends and this whole street is yeah. made up of food carts so the more things you can get to bring people to a square like this, the better. Plus there's special events. This yes. is highly programmed space on the weekends. There's always festivals, dragon boat festivals and, and such. So the, even the best spaces, public spaces, you need the other side of the equation, which is the programming, to make them work. Because even the best spaces in the world aren't necessarily hopping and vibrant no. every second of every day of That's every true. week. That's right. Do you have kids with you? Yeah, my son is over there. There's a park. Go to the park at just right one block there. that way. It's an amazing little park. Yeah. Just, across, just like on, just, the, on the seawall, you can see it. Yeah, yeah. as All soon right. as you go, go straight. past these buildings, yeah. you'll see a big lawn and okay. you'll see a hill. Okay. Uh, it's right th that way. You can go that way. Your kids and will love it. go to the top it. of the hill, it's there's a water so cool. thing that can run down and you can play you with the water. You press the button, the water goes in, uh, you know, and you can direct the water. And uh, anyway, amazing little park over there. My four-year-old awesome. loves that park. Yeah. Thank you. Well, t I'll take him. All right. All right. Thank you. Appreciate it. No problem. Thanks. Yeah, I have no idea what, where I was in that sentence. No, we were saying where does it end in the downtown. Oh right? yeah, yeah. You know, we did a we did an analysis back in 2006 that showed that everybody who lives in the downtown uh, generally generates about 1.5 tons per person of greenhouse gas emissions, and then as you radiate out of the downtown, it increases. Mm -hmm. And in the suburbs, it's 9, 10, 12, 13 tons per person. And the, at the time, the climate scientists were saying that as a population, we could only generate about 1.87 tons per person. So the theory was, if you believe that math, the only place in our city, in our region, which was considered the greenest city in North America from a greenhouse gas emissions per capita perspective, where we weren't contributing to climate change based on that 1.87 number, it was the downtown. Mm -hmm. So one way to interpret that is the more people we can get living in the downtown, the better it is for our future uh, from a climate change perspective so sometimes that's the counterbalancing point about whether the the, the 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 charm and the quaintness of a particular building relative to having people live more people live in the downtown where they can walk to work and things like that so that tension is playing out all the time but at the same time uh, we've been saying no matter how many people you can fit in the downtown or should fit in the downtown, it's still finite. We need to be looking at urban patterns of densification, successful densification outside the downtown, which was the basis of a lot of our work in my time at City Hall. And it's going to be the basis of the new city plan, which is just being launched um, right right now. Uh, that's going to talk about make the really tough conversation about how we densify the rest of the city in a very specific way. Mm -hmm. We did that in eco density. We established principles and visions for densification of, of the rest of the city, and even that was controversial. We weren't saying here's how tall it will be, here's how dense it will be. 
uh, back then. So Vancouver is in for a couple of years of really tough conversation as it does the, its first physical city plan in at least a few decades, if not ever, depending on your definition of whether our past plans were actually good plans that defined a physical reality. So now this is a social call. I came here, I wanted to see you again, and uh, my kids are playing cards here on the public space, waiting <laughs> incredibly patiently for Daddy to, to do his thing here with Brent, um, but they're having fun. They're not even like looking over at me, no. wondering how long it's going to take. They're playing cards, drinking some coffee and some iced coffee. But you, you said, hey, where do you want to meet? And you said, what about the Olympic Village? And uh, so you, can, you didn't insist on this, but you suggested this as yep. a place. So tell me, we're on the Olympic Plaza in the heart of what was the Olympic Village in 2010, the Winter Olympics. You're really digging this development. Don't, Tell me why. You don't get a chance to design and plan and almost spring out of the earth a community of this scale very often. So the Olympics is the catalyst for that. It's the reason why all of this happens so fast. Uh, but for years, uh, after this was all built and the Olympics and the Paralympics were over, um, it had a reputation as a ghost town. The, 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 the buildings were filling up. The retailing was coming in piece by piece and the retailing you see around this square is one of the single, if not the single most important element of making this public square such a, a successful and vibrant place in my opinion. It, it came in, it took a few years for these major pieces to come in, the puzzle pieces to fit in. And now it's vibrant. It's not always vibrant. Uh, it needs to be like any good public space needs to be programmed uh, at key times too. But it's also, it's as you can see, what 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 is it? It's Friday afternoon. Uh, still part-time with the work day, not at lunch. And we've still seen people here, families here, bike, bike, people on bikes, people taking, uh, doing walking tours and such. Uh, so there's life here. And what I like is that it's taken a few years, frankly, not as much as a normal community does because they grow much slower. But even since it sprung out of the earth for the Olympics, it's taken a few years to mature. And now it's the kind of community where you rock around, you see people all the time, you see kids all the time, baby strollers and young kids, uh, which I consider an indicator species for a successful neighborhood. It's also the greenest community in North America, according to the uh, U.S. Green Building Council, still 10 years later, the most lead ND points ever given to a neighborhood in North America. Oh, wow, okay. Uh, I, I, and you know, that bugs me because I, I made a big deal of the fact in, two, in 2010 that it got the most lead ND points and I wanted that number to be trumped several times by now mm -hmm. because we did this as a model to, to inspire other places to replicate and it bugs me that 10 years later this is still the greenest because it shouldn't be. We should, have, we should have topped this a few times since then, in greener and better, etc. And it really bugs me that it hasn't. Everything we did in this community, every innovation from passive design to district energy to public space design to, to built form to street design, we did it to inspire and change business as usual across our own city. And even before this project was done, we had changed the rules on all these things on how they would be done across our city. But we wanted to influence our region, we wanted to influence our country, and we wanted to influence the world. And that was our definition of success. Because you're not gonna save the world in terms of climate change by doing one great neighborhood. Every neighborhood has to be much better. So it bugs me that, that this hasn't had more of an effect uh, and it hasn't been topped. We've had several Olympics since then and it's not even the greenest athlete's village. Um, uh, and every athlete's village after us should have been the greenest. Yeah, yeah. Um, so 
that's a disappointment to me and there's various reasons political and otherwise why it wasn't more of a model but I'm doing what I can uh, not just because I'm not just a booster of Vancouver I'm a booster of greater urbanism wherever I find it and I've spent seven years since leaving City Hall learning from some of the best urbanism anywhere in the world that makes Vancouver look behind and backwards mm -hmm. in, in many cases um, but I think every city should be looking to inspire other cities with what it's achieving within its context, within its political structure, etc. Because our job is to inspire each other to all do better. And as I've said, we don't have all the time in the world. We have to be more impatient about it. Right. Now, is this one of the projects that you're most proud of in your work? Yes. Okay. <laughs> Quick answer. Definitely. Yeah. Well, again, because it's so rare to, to be involved in master planning, detailed building and street design, and just seeing it all built. Within six years, I was chief planner. Uh, it went from you know almost daily design review uh, negotiations to seeing it built in time for the Olympics to seeing it occupied after. It's very rare you get that opportunity. But we, this was bleeding edge, not just leading, but bleeding edge. Some things didn't work. Mm -hmm. Some things we probably wouldn't do again. But everything educated the process. Even the failures educated the process, the conversations moving forward. And frankly, there's far more successes than there are failures. I take ur urbanists from around the world, around this community, um, and um, it's often referred to as one of the three best new waterfront communities anywhere in the world. In the same conversation with places like uh, Hammerby in, in, in Stockholm and Akebrige in, in, in um, Oslo. So it's in that kind of a conversation. I don't think it's better than those two. I happen to think those two communities are better, but I think this is in the conversation. That's and weird you said Akebrige in Oslo because that's like just touristy like I don't even go there when I'm in Oslo I spent a lot of time there uh, oh. recently and but um, Akebrige has something just like this has retailing that yeah. most other public spaces don't have new think about where you can find a new waterfront development um, uh, anywhere in the world where half the space about half the space I think it was uh, about 60 40 initially and then with Sluzholm and afterwards it went down to about 50 50 was office and retail and shopping it's a mixed-use waterfront community. Right. Uh, and yes, the tourists are there, but there's a lot of people living there, there's a lot of people working there, and there's a lot of people shopping there. So there's a lot going on. Mm -hmm. And it can't be pigeonholed as just a tourist place. Sluzholmen, the, the back end is very high-end and more touristy, but the original Akebrege, I, I marveled at the fact that they were more ambitious with their mixing of uses than any other waterfront community I've seen, which is why I probably put it as number one or number two in my opinion. The funny thing about great places for, for, for people is they tend to become tourist places. And you know, keeping that balance so it doesn't get overrun by tourists, tourists is, is always one of the challenges of a great place. I mean, I would come here, which I did because you told me to, but um, if I was visiting Vancouver, yeah. I wouldn't go to Acapulco because I mean, it's just like, oh my God, no way. Like that's my perception, you know, that's just my perception of it. Uh, well, I'll give you a counter perception. Um, my wife, who is also a city planner and urbanist, uh, and of course we have two kids, she uh, loves Vancouver, uh, is from Calgary, and is very picky about uh, the places that we've traveled. And she said something that she rarely says when we were walking around Akebrega. She said, we could move here. I'd be okay if we, if right. you, if you, if you uh, got some projects or we found some work here. And I found that interesting because she doesn't say that to me very often. Yeah, right. We've toured some great, pretty great places in cities all over the world. Now you you've, you travel all the time like I do, and you know you see all this stuff all over the planet. You got your finger on the pulse. 
fancy schmancy European guys like me, they come here and you know, we think that we know how to do stuff and we, I think generally we do. Mm -hmm. I mean, but what do you think that European planners yep. and urbanists and politicians could learn from mm -hmm. uh, the Olympic Village here? Well, when I was chief planner, and that was seven years ago that I left City Hall, I used to, I marveled, I was surprised by the fact that the number one place in the world that would come to, to study the Vancouver model of city building was China. And that's not surprising since half our population is of Asian descent. But the number two was the Netherlands. And, and, several, and, and in that broader category, the Finns, the Danes, uh, the Norwegians, the Swedes, I was surprised that that Northern European uh, Scandinavian region was so interested because well, we do tall buildings and they didn't necessarily know that we do mid-rise buildings really well. Uh, our reputation was for tall buildings. Why were they coming to Vancouver? And what I realized is they did understand that we had a set of principles around city building and particularly waterfront city building that they thought they could learn from. Uh, the the, the eco-density initiative exercise here in Vancouver ended up becoming a major inspiration for the Netherlands policy on national policy on densification, about how to do it with amenities for livability, multi-mobility, so it's not car dependent, well-designed, etc. And, and they were smart enough to look past and not be distracted by the tall glass buildings and look to the principles that shaped particularly how buildings land, how streets and communities get built, etc. And I was really impressed. I was surprised, but I was impressed by that. And they started bringing me to their European cities back in 2006, 2007, which was my first taste of being a peer reviewer and, uh, and um, part of the conversation about how those cities change. One of my main observations was we could learn a lot from old European urbanism that had been built, frankly, quite a while ago. But a lot of the new stuff wasn't that great. You look at uh, Jurstad or, or places like that in, in the su suburbs in or the waterfront yeah. in Copenhagen or the waterfront of Copenhagen. And what you saw was large objects landing poorly not activating the water edge, not activating the public spaces. It was kind of a Rem Koolhaas definition of urbanism, where building as object, no sense of scale, no sense. I was surprised at how bad the stuff I saw in places like Copenhagen. Yeah, totally, yeah. And, and Amsterdam, whereas we were doing that better. So our waterfront, our buildings um, along our waterfront are much more human, uh, much more active. Uh, along our waterfront edge than the European cities were at the time. Now, I think they've gotten better. I think we've learned from European cities how to do our center of our, our central spaces that aren't on the waterfront better, because we weren't particularly good at that. I think some of those cities learned from cities like Vancouver on how to do their waterfront urbanism better. And isn't that great that we both weren't lazy and assumed we couldn't learn from each other just because we were fixated on the fact that, oh, doesn't Vancouver just have tall buildings? And one of the reasons I wanted to bring you here, and I bring everyone here, and I, I comment that three out of the four projects I take every chief planner from around the world to when they come to town are mid-rise projects. Because we have more mid-rise projects in our, in our city than we have tall buildings, and particularly outside our downtown. We have a very big city that isn't inside our downtown. So the majority of our urbanism, um, it's tall buildings in the downtown, it's strategically located tall buildings, in the rest of the city, but frankly, 
the answer is no to tall buildings more often than it's yes. Hey guys, uh, and then mid-rise mid-rise right. buildings <laughs> that are are uh, establishing transit corridors, uh, uh, supporting transit ridership, walking and biking, etc., outside the rest of the city, and gradually replacing the single detached houses that have been part of our, our of our city experience for a long period of time. So, when I bring you to Olympic Village, where there was a battle to make this tall buildings initially. Oh, surely to, for Olympic Village to succeed, they, we have to have tall buildings. My predecessor, Larry Beasley, sort of said over my dead body and fought the initial fight to keep this as a vision, as a mid-rise community. And I'm very glad because it shows, it's a great example of that we're not a one-trick pony. We don't just do tall buildings in Vancouver. We do buildings of every scale well. And the point I always make is that cities are entirely too focused on how many floors a building has. Uh, because tall buildings are not inherently bad and mid-rise buildings are not inherently good. Badly designed buildings are bad and well-designed buildings are good no matter how tall they are. And I can prove that in mm. terms of the actual performance of buildings and how they strengthen streets and communities and blocks, etc. So I think there's a lot of dogma about tall buildings. There's a lot of misconceptions about Vancouver and the Vancouver model. People think because I was chief planner that I'm pro-tall buildings. I probably said no to far more tall buildings than I ever said yes to. Um, but I want every building of every scale to be urban buildings that, that strengthen the street, the block, and the neighborhood and contribute to the quality of urban life, no matter how many floors they have. Where do you think Vancouver can improve generally uh, going forward in the next 100, 200 years? Well, it's it's improving, but maybe not fast enough around multi-mobility. You know, when I, when I uh, when I weigh us against North American cities, we do extremely well around bike infrastructure and, 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 and walking and, and public transit. But when I compare us against global cities, which I tend to do, uh, it shows how, much we, how far we still have to go. So there's categories where we're doing very well, but I think we need to go further faster. There's other categories, you know, I'm not, I'm not sure we haven't slipped in the area of how to do density well successfully. I think in, this, in the spirit of trying to get as many people into urban conditions as possible, we are risking overbuilding uh, our sites and our blocks. And there is such a thing as buildings that are too big. Mm -hmm. For a city that is known for its density and its height, there is such a thing as building too tall and too big and too bulky. And in recent years, we've seen examples of that. So I think we've got to protect our principles of knowing how to do density well, not just cramming people in. Um, so that in the last few years has, has um, shooken me a bit. Um, I think the truth is I think there's any number of things. For everything we do well, I know a city that does something better than we do. And that's what I love about being a global urbanist now in the last seven years rather than the chief planner here. So we can have a conversation about what other cities can learn from Vancouver, from Medellin, from Auckland, from Oslo, from Helsinki, from Groningen, from a lot of cities I've worked with and in. But they're interested in learning from this city. Uh, I'm interested in them learning from other cities like Latin American, Austral Australasian cities, etc. And we can all learn from each other because that's, I think, the reason I get so frustrated when I, when I see anybody writing off a city. And Vancouver is a city that is both popular to, 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 to think about, but also popular to write off, if you know what I mean. Mm -hmm. um, we should neither replicate a city like Vancouver, nor should we write it off. There are things that can be learned here, um, in both in terms of what we do well and what we do poorly, that other cities can benefit from. And the truth, that truth is the same in every city. 
I don't write off any city in terms of what I can learn from it. It's all a toolbox, right? A little bit from Copenhagen, some from yeah. Vancouver, uh, Melbourne, wherever, right? I mean, yeah. that, that toolbox Latin American, should be... Latin American yeah. cities. You you went to, to Medellin. The Medellin my, my two years advising Medellin was probably the biggest eye-opener I've ever had as an urbanist. Mm -hmm. Not just in terms of what's possible, but how fast things are possible. We think, well, I don't think, I tend to think we're mind-numbingly slow in our innovation in North America at times, and, and that can be true in, in European cities as well. Latin American cities can teach us a lot mm -hmm. about how to do things fast and cheap and smart because they, do, they don't get to run two times in a row, as you know. Yeah, right. Um, hey, I'm just randomly, because we're sitting here, I'm looking over at downtown um, and the, the forest of uh, tall buildings. Is there like a limit on how tall you can build? Yeah. I mean, that's why there's no Sears Tower, Empire right. State Building, Turning Torso downtown. Right. They're, they're, we, we have a version of Turning Torso. It's 62 stories. I actually said to council once, because I'd been spending some time with a, an architect named Ken Yang, who is big on green skyscrapers, who said that basically the tallest you can go as a building and still be, have it be considered green. Well, relative to the population density supporting public transit and the, the inherent benefits of density is about 60 stories. And beyond that, the carbon footprint of, the, of just keeping that building standing up was too much. You couldn't compensate. It didn't do you any good to, to have the public transit and all that. So he said, and, and that stuck in my head yeah. because the tallest, there's a, we've only got three buildings in the city that are a few floors higher than 60. So by that, um, by that measure, uh, we have a pretty sustainable skyline. Tall, but not super tall. Uh, and we felt a large population in, 110, 120,000 people living in the downtown peninsula, walking to work, living low car use, low car ownership, low carbon footprint lives. But we don't have that super tall. The, 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 usual, uh, the usual height limits um, in, the, in the downtown south area are about... Uh, uh, about 35, 40 stories. Um, the tallest buildings are in the order of 50 to 60 with a few. There's three tallest buildings in key locations specifically planned that went a little bit over 60 stories. Mm -hmm. But we believe in height limits. The, the interesting thing that people are surprised at because they think that the developers are running the show is we regulate tall buildings in Vancouver more than any other city I've ever seen in the world. Mm -hmm. And I've studied the systems of a lot of cities. Uh, they're regulated about how tall they are, how wide they are in terms of floor plate size, how close they can be together relative to separation distance, how they assemble over sites to protect public views to the water, layers into the downtown. Uh, we don't have wind tunnel problems because of the way our towers are separated and land on a podium. The podium dimensions and such are highly regulated. Uh, all of those elements, and of course the ground plane has to be active with no blank walls. So we, the vigorous regulation of tall buildings means we get the tall buildings we want. If you don't like them, you can blame the city because we highly regulate them. So whether you like, I, I know when I became chief planner, I wanted a little more architectural variety. But what we did have is urbanist consistency uh, in terms of how the buildings performed together to address many of the issues that tall buildings normally have. So uh, we may uh, be known for tall buildings, but one of the reasons I think we do tall buildings better than most, if, if not any city, is because we regulate them specifically more than any other city I know. And that's another one of the reasons why um, uh, cities come to study us. A lot of European cities have come to me and said, um, while in the context of other things I might be doing for them, 
Brent, we've got this tall building proposal in Helsinki, for example, or in Oslo uh, around the, the transit uh, stations. Can you do a peer review for us? Take a look at them because we're worried these might be too tall. And I, I'll spend a day with them or two looking at everything and I'll tell them, I see, I don't know, maybe 10, 15 things that I'm highly concerned about with these tall building proposals. And none of those 15 things have to do with how tall they are. European cities do tall buildings remarkably badly. Mm -hmm. they, are, they are done about as badly as you can do tall buildings. And yet the whole conversation is about how many floors it has, instead of there being a conversation about how to do tall buildings better. Which is why in the work that I do uh, everywhere, I say let's break down the elements of what works and doesn't work in a tall building um, and do tall buildings well if you're going to do them. I find that interesting because in the Nordic capitals we have a city architect who mm. dictates the aesthetics and the placement and the public's, you know, and they will, uh, they have an influence on that. But yeah. you're saying really that, that Vancouver, one of the things we can learn from this city is policy, strict policy regarding the tall buildings and the public space and the retail and whatnot. I think that's a, that's something we haven't talked about. You're saying uh, you have all this stuff in place, so you, you limit the uh, opportunity to screw up. I mean, uh, is that something other cities can learn? Well, part of it might be, and I, when I first started working in Copenhagen in 2006, I observed that there, there was the city planner, but the city architect almost had more gravitas uh, mm -hmm. at City Hall. And it fed my perspective that at that moment in European urbanism, the object was more important than the pattern. That worried me um, because I observed at the time that Rotterdam and Vancouver were like the two sides of a coin. Uh, Rotterdam was all about the Rem Koolhaas object and frankly the urbanism was not particularly good in 2006-2007. They've improved since then, I, should, I will point out. Vancouver was all about the pattern, but the objects, there was nothing particularly special about them. So one of the most common phrases I would hear from visitors or ordinary citizens even were, we love this city, it's such a great city to walk around and such, but why do all the buildings look the same? There was this narrative that the architecture, the object, wasn't anything special. But the, all of the objects contributed to the pat strength of the pattern, the streets, the blocks, the neighborhood, right? And so I observed at the time, back in 2006, Rotterdam and Amsterdam and Copenhagen that I did uh, a tour with, that a city like Rotterdam, if it could learn urbanism fast, then it would win. But I liked our chances in Vancouver better because it's harder to transform the urbanism than it is to transform the architecture. Because what I said is all I need to do is inspire a handful of really special buildings in key locations, which we actually did a tall building strategy to figure out the key locations, including the one where Bjarke Ingels building is on the water. If we just identify a few key locations, we could transform the perspective of the architecture of our city. Because like Barcelona and such, you don't need every building being unique and screaming for attention. You just needed specially located buildings and you changed the sense of architecture and the rest become background buildings. So I said to Rotterdam, I can change the sense of architecture in Vancouver faster than you can change the sense of urbanism. The truth is interesting. I think they actually have done a good job of, of their urbanism is better, mm -hmm. although it's been a few years since I've been there. But our architecture has also gotten better. Um, never at the expense of how the, 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 the buildings contribute to the urbanism, but you know, we have um, uh, adventurous buildings, uh, key strategic locations that terminate a view or frame a, a view or what have you. So this interplay of object and, and pattern, this interplay in a city hall of chief architect and chief city planner is very interesting to me. My sense of the European cities is they were more focused on the object than the pattern, but I think that's been improving.
And I don't know if that's partially because they've been inspired by cities like Vancouver, but whenever they asked me to come and work with them and talk to them, that's what I stressed. You had to stop being myopically focused on the architect and think about the pattern. And you don't have to choose. You can have great objects and great pattern. That's that's the, 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 the sweet spot. Brent, I get icy stares from my children behind you now. <laughs> um, we could do this all day, as yep. we as we both know, but uh, hey, dude, Thanks so much for your time, and uh, it's good to see you again. My pleasure. It's always good to hang with you, and thanks for what you're doing out there in the world spreading this kind of conversation, because I think it's important. Now, as you can hear, Brent knows a thing or two about this topic. It was great to pigeonhole him about it and to hear his take. Normally, when we're together, we bounce around the conversation like crazy. I came away from my chat with Brent with a new perspective. I like that. I don't mind being schooled. I knew that he would spell it out for me, and I get it. Vancouver seems to do tall buildings well, as well as density, thanks to policy, regulation, and vision. By and large, Brent helped me understand the local context, and it's totally in line with what I say in my work. It's about the space around the building, something too many architects and planners still tend to forget. Will I now advocate for tall buildings in my work around the world? Fuck no. I wouldn't wish it on any city. Let's all learn from each other, absolutely. Cross-pollination of ideas is more important now than ever before. More of that, please. We don't have a lot of time. If, for whatever reason, you have to slap up a tall building, learn from Vancouver. Most importantly, just make sure you design good buildings. But, at the end of the day, I believe urban anthropology is the indicator. People who live in a tall building city who travel to, for example, a European city, generally love the scale, be it Copenhagen, Paris, Barcelona, wherever. To be honest, it's not often the other way around. You've been listening to The Life-Sized City, my podcast about urbanism and urban change. As ever, this episode was produced thanks to red wine and coffee. The music was composed by Phil Creamer. Check out his website at www.hereonout.com. I'm Michael Koval-Anderson. Thanks for listening.